The Old Testament reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of our Lord. Gospel reading is from Luke 3, 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iture and Traconus, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region about the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough way shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The word of the Lord. Hundreds and hundreds, okay, around 3,000 years ago, some ancient poet wrote the poetry that we read from Isaiah, where the rough is made smooth and the crooked made straight, blah, 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 blah. It's a rather famous poem. All the gospel writers quote from it, but nobody even knows who the poet was who wrote it. The The prophet Isaiah gets the credit because the poetry is found in his book, but everybody knows it wasn't him. I mean, like all the scholars agree that it wasn't him. Um, But nobody really knows for sure who it was. Uh, Maybe it wasn't even a him. Well, that's doubtful. It was some nameless, anonymous, ancient artist. Which, who he was, what what I wonder, and why don't we know anything about him, maybe if she or he, we maybe if we knew his identity, but maybe it was hidden for a reason, maybe because of some sort of like scandal, or maybe because he was some raging rebel. Maybe he was all wild and a drunkard like some poets are. 
and they had to rescue his journals from some abandoned hashish den, or they found pieces of poems scattered and scrawled on cocktail napkins and camels' saddles. Or maybe he's just another one of the countless unidentified writers in the Bible. But his work is amazing. You might not have been all that amazed by it. It, The little bit of his work that you heard, valleys being filled, blah, 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 blah. But I just read a lot of it. And once you get past the super familiar parts, it's very wild and very beautiful, gleeful, playful, childlike even in moments. And then full of stunning cultural critique and irony in other moments. And in other moments, it's smart and subversive. And the biggest thing about it is that it's incredibly hopeful. He's the most hopeful poet in all of the scriptures, according to Hebrew scholars anyway, which is kind of remarkable because the poet lived and wrote at the end of one of the bleakest times in the history of his people. Israel had been swallowed up by this huge monolithic um, Babylonian empire, and the people were being held captive in Babylon. What consumed the daily life of the poet's people was the enormous, pressing reality of empire. There was no room for anything else, no room for their gods, no hope for a loving, equitable equability, just cultural. It was a hard culture to believe in. And it was hard to believe in anything outside of the overwhelming totality of this ruling power. What they were forced to believe in was what surrounded them, and they had to adapt to it, and they did. This all seems very familiar. Some of the people eventually got good Babylonian jobs and made lots of Babylonian money. Some actually began to like shopping at the big Babylonian shopping malls and eating the supersized Babylonian food and watching Babylonian reality TV. They just started living by the way of the empire because what else really could they even do? They quit thinking quite so much about some other possibility, some other reality, some other home. The empire was everything and everywhere, and the people who learned to work it and play its games were going to be the ones who succeeded. So, of course, but then this wild, childlike, subversive poet starts writing these radical songs, making insurgent art, planting notions in people's minds, dissonant and reckless poems that violate on every level what the people had come to understand as necessity and limits of possibility. And what is? These poems, they start talking about home. Home, a place completely and wholly outside of the empire. The wild poet is not all that helpful to their process of adaptation to the empire because he conjures up something other, something different, something much, much more lovely. It's like he just keeps thinking up these the craziest, most beautiful things he can think of, and he makes it into poetry. 
For the most part, the poem we read from tonight takes place on a road. And all the Israelites who were stuck in Babylon are on this road. And they're going home. They're going home out of the empire. And even though the, through, and even through the roads, the roads go through the desert, there are roses and poppies sprouting up everywhere. And the cleanest, clearest water you've ever seen is transforming the dry and the brittle landscape into some sort of waterfall, babbling brook extravaganza, and you can just drink it. You don't even need to filter it because there's no toxic runoff or dangerous microbes, and everybody lives to be a hundred, and no kids ever die or get sick. And it's not only Israel that's on the road to home, it's everybody, everywhere. Crazy. Like there's Palestinians on the road, and Germans, and Scandinavians, and skinheads, and feminists, and the Pope, and there's monkeys, and chickens, and the wolves, and the lambs have their arms around each other, and Obama and Romney love each other, and decide to live together with their families in modest homes in the mountains, and give the White House to Elizabeth Warren. And God is there, kissing and nursing, cradling everybody who needs healing. And as if there could be more, everlasting joy is raining down on everyone's head. I like that image a lot. Everlasting joy raining down on everybody's head. In a time and a place where there was no room for such crazy hope, the poet writes absurdly hopeful poetry. It was not very realistic. Eventually the people do leave Babylon and return to Israel, and they do take a path through the wilderness, but it's nothing like the path that the poet imagined. It's exhausting and difficult, and of course the mountains don't sing, and the valleys don't fill, and there aren't roses and poppies, and children do die, and the wolf does not lie down with the lamb, and people still hate each other and fight, and Elizabeth Warren does not get the White House. So, it's a little bit surprising that the people don't end up just ripping up this guy's mad rantings and burning them as false propaganda, as some ludicrous fantasy that led them on. But instead, his poetry ends up being scripture, holy scripture, giving shape to faith. You could look at this and think the Bible is stupid, ridiculous, just an irrelevant fantasy. But I think the wild poet's poetry became so important because it actually worked somehow, freed up some piece of the people's minds, pulled them out of the blind and hazy stupor that the empire generates, generated, generates. The poet didn't overthrow the empire, but he did overcome some of the captivity with hope, with imagination, that's not like optimism that is based on reasonable estimation and data and facts. 
but hope. Hope that had a huge crazy quality that is a little what the Bible is like in a lot of places, this kind of irrational hope. We always use the wild poet's poetry in Advent in anticipation of the birth of Jesus, which seems appropriate because the story of Jesus, God incarnate, is also a little far-fetched. Not something born exactly out of reason or data or your run-of-the-mill fact. Luke tells a story where a virgin gives birth to a baby who is God, the creator, God incarnate, who's going to free every captive and give sight to the blind and make the lame walk and bring salvation and freedom and justice and love to the entire world. So yeah, the story shares some of the poetic beauty of that crazy road through the wilderness and some of the implausible qualities as well. The poet's poem was revolutionary because it set free hope that unraveled and stretched and grew and pushed its way up through the cracks in the big Babylonian concrete parking lot that paved over everything, suffocating. Luke's vision is revolutionary too. From the first page of his story, the most marginalized people are given the fullest attention. A barren old woman, a young unmarried pregnant girl, poor shepherds, the least, play the key roles in the birth of Jesus. God is born in a barn. In Luke's story, Jesus changes the world, turns everything upside down. The first are last, the humble are exalted. It's fantastic, it's wonderful. But these changes don't seem to have quite taken hold. If you know what I mean, it seems like the empire actually won after all. And it keeps winning every time rich and the powerful rule, the hungry die, and there are sad people and blind people and poor shepherds. But still, it's like the Gospels are great stories, but we know it's another year and nothing has changed. A lot of revolutionaries have thought that the thing to do with these sorts of stories is to tear them up and throw them out, burn them. Useless lies, opiate of the people sort of a thing. Forget this bourgeois poetry. Strike, organize, occupy. A poet says, hope is the thing with feathers. Some revolutionaries are like that. Just kill the silly bird and make soup to feed the people. But I think maybe the Bible has such a poetic quality because poetry is true in a way that facts and statistics and calculus and objective certainty and practicality and economics can't be. Because it points to something unconstrained by empire, unconstrained by reality, Something outside the rules and laws of the empire that determines what we think we know. Something free and outside 
what we know. Or maybe inside, but so deeply, or something that seems hidden. And this poetic hope subverts whatever settles over us like some blind stupor, allowing no space to imagine anything. Imagine that anything could ever be different than it is. Maybe singing the poet's song actually cracks the concrete a little bit more. Maybe singing the poet's songs actually cracks the concrete more than reciting and memorizing and believing in all the perverse facts that we're capable of. In Advent, we are called to imagine an alternative. We're called to hope. Lack of hope and lack of imagination serve the dominant paradigm really well. Obviously, because it's like conceding that there are no alternatives. Empire is actually everything. And there's no space for anything else. No future that calls into question the present order. But hope subverts the power structures and claims that, that it is everything Although there was no room at the inn, God incarnate was born. Albeit born in a barn, with all the sheep and goats breathing down his neck. Even though there was no room anywhere, God came into the world. And that is the story that we tell at Christmas. Luke says that the powers that be were taking a census at the time of Jesus' birth. He exaggerates. He says all the world was taken up preoccupied with the empire's task, its obsession with counting, so that all the people complying with the, in the inventory apparently don't even notice or can't hear the song that the angels are singing. They're announcing the good news of great joy to all the people. It's a song, and we might say that singing a song doesn't change reality, but maybe we shouldn't say that with too much conviction. Maybe the wild poet knew not to begin by asking if his poetry was realistic or politically practical or economically viable. Because to begin with such questions is already to concede everything to the empire. He couldn't free the people by speaking the language of the empire, the language of data and demographics and practicality and necessity. He needed a different language that would free our imaginations to look outside our cages. The story of Jesus calls us to imagine alternatives instead of acting in accordance to the rules that serve the structures of oppression. It is insane to put our faith in the poetry that is scripture rather than the facts that govern our world. To act foolishly for love and peace, to make frail and fa fragmentary attempts in the face of monolithic, seemingly hopeless realities. You know, I say no, it is not insane. Prepare the way of the Lord with subversive hope and revolutionary imagination.